0: If I was to ask you, what do you long for most in life? I wonder what would come to mind. I think for some, the answer would relate to something they treasure, something they want to have. Uh, It might be something as simple as freedom, uh, to travel, to see friends, like the many things we're experiencing during these COVID restrictions. But perhaps there's a deeper longing, I mean, I'm sure there is, for friendship perhaps, uh, for marriage, or deeper still, for the salvation of someone that we love deeply, who unfortunately to this day just still won't listen to our appeals to believe the gospel. For others, the answer relates to something that they suffer or something they want to not have, like the grief over uh, loss of a loved one, that's painful. A Guilt over prolonged struggles with temptation. Uh, Despair over overwhelming sickness or sorrow, stress, anxiety. There's a ton of different things you can long to be done with those things. But what about the return of Christ and everything that return brings? Do you long for that? And is that what you long for most? When it comes, we'll see the judgment of the wicked, the salvation of God's people, the vindication of God's name and the renewal of the heavens and the earth. And yet, sometimes, Christ's return ranks low in our list of longings. I mean, how often does the prayer, come Lord Jesus, feature in what we ask God to do? It's an interesting exercise. I actually read something by a pastor and author, Mark Dever, this past week, which struck me. Uh, he said, if Christ were a good congregationalist, and he presented his instant return as a vote at our next members meeting, how would we vote? Now How would you vote? It's an interesting exercise, isn't it? I mean, could it be that we put it off in our minds? We have a hope for it, but we delay it in a sense. We, we could maybe even prioritise our ambitions, hopes, and plans over his. Could it be that even having been given gifts and to enjoy, like children, that we love them, those gifts, more than him? Or could it be actually that the vindication of Christ's name against all the satanic and ungodly ideas in this world, like we've seen in the book of Revelation, are of little concern to us. It might be for us that life is good just now and it's comfy and we we don't really want to give up this earthly comfort for our heavenly home. Or could it be that we prefer the company of dear ones here more than we want to be in the presence of the King and all his beauty there? Or maybe we want the salvation of a loved one more than we want to see Jesus' face. That's a tricky one. But in Revelation 22, we're told what to long for and how to long for it. And I'm going to deal with the what in this sermon and the how next week. So open up your Bibles with me to Revelation. We'll look at verses 1 to 6 first and what to long for. Uh, The thing that we should long for above all is the return of Christ because it brings in the eternal enjoyment of God and his blessings. That's how I'd summarise verses 1 to 5, the eternal enjoyment of God and all his blessings. Let me show you how I arrived at that. In verses one to five you have three images that stick out. Three things that are rich in biblical symbolism. A river, a tree and a throne. Let's look at the river first of all. Uh, the river symbolizes the blessing of God's provision. Okay. When you look at verses one and two and you read about this river you see how it's described in terms of quality it's life-giving and pure it's living water clear as crystal the text says that's no wonder given its source it flows not from a spring but from the throne of god and the lamb now living water is a common theme in the bible from cover to cover and in genesis chapter 2 verse 10 we find that eden itself way back in the beginning as god created all things good had a life-giving river Access to that river was lost, of course, when Adam sinned, but the prospect of God's all-satisfying provision was the promise and indeed the hope of God's people throughout the Bible. So you can read in Ezekiel 47, Psalm 46, Zechariah 14, they all describe rivers, even flowing from the temple in Jerusalem, but there's no temple in Jerusalem it's built on a huge hill. No, this is an expression really of the hope to come and the... complete redemption that God has promised to bring now one day as God has promised God's people will experience God's life-giving refreshment forever and the way to that life-giving refreshment is revealed to us with crystal clarity through Jesus Christ himself to the women at the well in John 4:10, he said if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So life-giving, ever-satisfying provision of a, a new and better Eden, if you like, is what's promised to those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now who wouldn't long for that? And what among our earthly longings compares to that? You know, we live every day toiling in life. We live every day actually with the threat of death. We thirst for true satisfaction. But in a sense, we choose choose to drink toilet water from manky systems in dirty glasses with blue bottles floating in them when we prefer earth's satisfactions to heavens. This passage encourages us to thirst instead for the return of Christ and the life-giving provision of the new heaven and new earth that he's prepared for us. So maybe next time you go to the cupboard and you take a glass, maybe thirsty after a good night's sleep or a good long walk, run the tap. Fill your glass and drink. And let that revitalising refreshment that satisfies the body's physical longing be a reminder of the all-satisfying provision of God in the new heaven and new earth. Well, verse 2 takes us from the water of life to this tree of life. And the tree symbolises the blessing of God's salvation. And of course, we've met this tree before. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 tells us that it was one of two trees. In the Garden of Eden, well, there were many trees, but two special ones in particular. The significance of the tree of life only really comes into focus after the fall when access to it is restricted out of a concern that humanity's sinful state might become irreversible. To God, that cannot happen. Part of his plan cannot happen. So God expels Adam and Eve from Eden, of course, and sets a supernatural guard to bar the way to the tree. And from that day, Death was on the horizon, not just for Adam, but for us. But here in Revelation 22, in this new and better Eden, there's no mean looking angel or flashing Indiana Jones style swords blocking the way. No, the way is open and inviting. You only have to reach your hand up to this tree of life and eat. Actually, that's what Jesus promised in Revelation chapter two and verse seven, when he said to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, how do we get to be victorious, I guess, is the question. Simple. Through Christ, who won the victory. That's what makes this tree of life a salvation thing, more than just another provision thing, like the river. Uh, So when you think about it, every time you walk up to that tree, what do you think you'll be thinking about? Every time you pluck a piece of the fruit and take a mouth-watering bite you'll remember i expect that your way was once barred but jesus opened up the way to that tree and to this eternal life through his death his death was what as that the same passage says reversed the curse of sin and made us righteous in god's sight and people from every nation and tribe along with us will aid that reminder for us. And that's why we'll enjoy the blessing of God's salvation in a sweeter way even than we do now and enjoy that sweetness forever. As only the return of Christ makes that a reality and that's why we should long for it. I mean, what else compares to that? What else compares to that provision, that enjoyment of salvation? I mean, we do all we can to remember the gospel together as a church in the ways that Jesus has called us to. That's why we preach the gospel regularly. That's why we celebrate the gospel in both baptism and the Lord's Supper regularly and how we miss doing that just now. But to enjoy salvation on the other side of redemption's final act and to enjoy it in the presence of God, it is beyond compare. Long for that. So this passage encourages us, long for that and one day enjoy it. Well, along with the river and the tree, we have, of course, the throne, symbolising the blessing of God's presence. throne is a big deal throughout Revelation uh, and in all of the Bible. It's a symbol of God's sovereign rule. It's his powerful authority depicted. Now, we live in a world where that rule is rejected and his authority is defied. And the resulting immorality is painful and upsetting to us and offensive to God. But this passage promises that one day we will live in a place where his rule is the delight of his people. And it will be our delight to serve him, as verse 3 says, and not only that, to reign with him. And not only that, but to see him. This text says they will see his face. Now, that is incredible. Moses, in Exodus 33, boldly asked God, show me your glory. And God says, no, 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 not going to happen. You can't see my face for no one will see me and live. And yet, when Christ returns and the new heaven and new earth are ushered in, we will not only be in the presence of God forever, we will see his actual face. We will see the face of Jesus Christ. When righteousness is ours and death and sin are no more, we will see him, the Lord himself, the one we love. Now, I find this incredibly hard to grasp. What will that actually be like? And don't we, as Christians see that we ought to long for this above all things. I mean, this is Jesus that we are talking about here. If we don't find in our hearts a longing to meet him and see his face, we ought to check our hearts. Because if he's not our all satisfying treasure and our deepest longing, top of the list, we maybe need to hit the reset button. We maybe need to revisit the basics and remember what following Christ is all about and remember what Christ himself has done. This uh, longing to see the face of Christ reminded me of how I felt when my wife and I first found out that we were going to have a baby. Um, I could not wait to meet that little one that was uh, growing bit by bit uh, every day. Now what struck me uh, was that I longed for her in a way that was different to the way I longed for something else, maybe like a gadget or something like that. I like gadgets. Uh, You know, with a gadget, you can be like, well, I'm really excited about having that. I can't wait to buy that. But with her, with our baby girl, I just thought, I can't wait to see her, look into her eyes, play with her, talk to her. I can't wait to relate to her. Now every thought of her and every new piece of knowledge that came, uh, you know, based on the extent to which she was growing and so on, filled me with a growing longing. And nine months was a long time to wait. But when that moment came and I saw her and I held her and I looked into her tiny wee face, face to face, I was filled with a joy and a love that I cannot explain. We were relating. And it's a joy and a love that I experience every day that God gives me to experience it. And with the boys too, I should say. But that's the kind of longing that we ought to have with Jesus. To see him and to long for that. to, To be at a stage where you just cannot wait to see him. And then just to enjoy every single day when you can. Well, as in pregnancy, there is an expectation of his coming. And that expectation is an everyday thing. The moment is fast approaching and with it, the joy of seeing our saviour's face. Now, do you long for that? Oh, we ought to. Even as I talk about it, I'm reminded of a song that it's almost upsetting to recall because we can't sing together in church, but uh, it's a song that we sing. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen How I'll sing your sovereign grace. Now, what's the next line? Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring your promises to pass. Now, Revelation 22, one to five, presents us with the reality of what happens when those promises are fulfilled. It's meant to usher in a sense of longing. We're meant to look at it and see Eden, but then to recognise the differences and see that it presents not only a restoration of Eden, but a perfection of Eden, an upgrade to Eden even, where the redeemed behold God's face and are marked by God's name and fulfil their calling even as royal priests and kings. You see, this vision of a new creation satisfies all our longings for this full redemption, the kind of stuff that we groan for, as Romans 8 points out. And for a renewed sense of being and meaning and for an enduring home in God's presence, the home of righteousness, as 2 Peter 3 says. And what makes the new heaven and new earth so dazzling is not gold or jewels or the presence of but it's the present presence of God. We'll see, savour, and serve God. This is the ultimate joy, as John Piper once said, God is the gospel. Now, surely, surely, given who he is and given the salvation and the redemption that he's won for us, this must be number one. This must be our primary longing. And I wonder if it is for you. I do hear a faint murmur of objection, perhaps a whisper of doubt. You know, can it really be true? It all just seems too good to be true, but let's not allow an ounce of uncertainty to creep in because, well, the Lord doesn't allow it, as we see in point two. And uh, verse six, that these, the eternal joy of God and his blessings are guaranteed by the one who is, as verse six says, trustworthy and true now trustworthy and true are the words that are used here to describe that this entire revelation we see we saw that back in actually even just the start of this um the new heaven and new earth section back from 21 verse 5 it said in 21 verse 5 he who was seated on the throne said i am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true now Um, We hear it again in verse six. In verse six, it says uh, of chapter 22, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So trustworthy means you can bank on it. These are secure words. These are dependable. They are true. No word of a lie, no hint of deceit, No chance of it not happening. Has a word of God ever fallen to the ground without achieving that for which it was sent out to do? No, not ever. So you can understand why the Lord Jesus himself says, or through his angels, hard to tell in here actually, he reassures God's people though to trust in his promises. What they're experiencing, and we experience too in life, is turbulence, hardship, suffering, struggle, anxiety, if that's not bad enough, we're enticed by Babylon on one side or beaten up by the beast on the other. Perseverance as a church and as Christians is hard. Does God know about it all? Does God care? Will he help? Will he give us the power to do it? Will it be all right in the end? The book of Revelation and verse six of chapter 22 is a great big fat bold italics and underlined, yes, yes. And here's why, because he himself, is trustworthy and true remember back in Revelation nineteen eleven, where Jesus is depicted as a, a rider on a white horse coming to exercise judgment on the world and John says I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true this is who he is this is what his words are his words are completely consistent with his character and he cannot be anything but who he is faithful and true the question is then do we believe him now if you're watching today and you're not a christian i have to be super clear and say that the promises that are held out here are for those who believe his words and character that he is trustworthy and true and that the blessings that are spoken about in here are for those who have their sins forgiven and who are longing for his appearance. Now, if that's not you, you won't know the eternal joy of God and his blessings as I've laid them out in point one. Your future, as things stand, to be frank, is laid out in chapter 20 and it's horribly different. That's why Christians like me, in love, ask you to consider believing in Jesus, to consider reading the Bible with us, to talk about the things that might get in the way of you believing the gospel so that you can put your trust in this foundational book. Now, C.S. Lewis said, uh, helped us uh, in a book called Mere Christianity to consider whether or not we are preferring um, the wrong things whenever we choose not to believe in Christ and all the joys that he holds out. In fact, he says, he criticizes humanity for um, being satisfied with lesser things. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Whatever you invest your life in, whatever you live for that is not Jesus Christ, it's like building mud pies in the slums, not sand castles on a shore. Believe in the Lord Jesus, read more, hear the gospel again and let it become clearer. Long for his appearing with us. And if you are a Christian, well, we're going to walk through verses 7 to 21 next week, which show us how to long for Jesus. It'll be very much more practical than it is but for uh, today, but for now, I think it's just enough for us to examine our own hearts and ask again the question I opened with. What do you long for most? And heed the appeal of these first six verses of chapter 22. Long for Christ and his return. Amen.